Hi, welcome to the very first episode of Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee. I'm the head of Veritas Catholic Network. I'm blessed to be here with the star and namesake of the show, Bishop Frank Caggiano. His Excellency was born in Brooklyn and attended Regis High School before going to Yale and then to Cathedral College of the Immaculate Conception. He was ordained a priest in 1987 and named Auxiliary Bishop of Brooklyn in 2006. On September 19, 2013, he was installed as the fifth Bishop of Bridgeport. Since then, among many other things, he was invited by Pope Benedict XVI to deliver World Youth Day talks in Sydney and Madrid, and by Pope Francis to be a catechist at World Youth Day in Rio. Bishop Frank serves on four committees of the USCCB. He was one of five American bishops elected to represent the U.S. at the Synod on Young People, and he recently was elected to chair the Board of Directors for Catholic Relief Services. Your Excellency, it's my great honor to be sitting across from you. Steve, thank you. Thank you. And allow me to start by simply saying thank you for being a trailblazer and a visionary that allowed Veritas Radio to come to fruition. It is a great gift to the diocese and to all your listeners. So I am delighted to be here and to inaugurate this program. Yeah. <laughs> I love the title, by the way. Uh, well, it wasn't my idea. It was the, the work of your good man, John Grasso. So, you know, I've been telling people that this show, I think, is really historic because it's the first time in the history of this diocese where our bishop can speak directly to all the people here um, on a weekly, regular basis, you know, on the radio, on the phone, through mass media, through every mm -hmm. device. Mm -hmm. It is. All the more reason I'm grateful for the opportunity. I mean, I've come to recognize that preaching in the contemporary world has many different methods. And what we're doing, you and I, are basically preaching. We're evangelizing. And we'll touch people that perhaps will, may not come to church or would not have heard the message in any other way. So we have tools at our disposal that earlier generations wouldn't have dreamt of. Yeah. So to be able to utilize them is a tremendous gift. And of course, to have an opportunity to have people give their input, questions, and create a larger dialogue is, is what the Holy Father is asking us to do, right. to engage people so that they themselves may become more committed to the faith. So I'm excited. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, me too. So thanks for being here. I thought, um, I thought we'd start out our very first show by getting to know you a bit. Oh. <laughs> So oh my. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people here in Bridgeport who do know you, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. we're, we're aiming to, to reach people outside of Bridgeport as well. Mm -hmm. So let, you were born in Brooklyn. I certainly was. You can tell from the accent, <laughs> which I have not lost. I, I must tell you, I, um, if we're going down memory lane, um, I consider myself to be one of the most blessed individuals because of the upbringing I had. Um, Growing up in Brooklyn in the time that I did, which is a very different Brooklyn that exists now. I bet. In neighborhoods where everyone knew your name, where I had one natural mother and a hundred surrogate mothers. <laughs> right. Where we were in and out of each other's homes. We played in the street. We, this question of having to worry and look over your shoulder and didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And... My experience of church was church was a fundamental piece of my life. St. Simon and Jude, we lived down the block from the church. Wow. So whether it was Stations of the Cross in Lent or whether it was the Marian Novenas in May 
or whether it was the Corpus Christi procession or Sunday mass or going to school at the parochial school, the church was like in every part of my life. And my parents were immigrants. So they were Italian, obviously. They were old school. Mm -hmm. Mom was the saint. Mm -hmm. My father was the reluctant believer. <laughs> I mean, he, he loved the church, but he didn't always practice his faith, the truth be told. So I saw both sides of the coin. Sure. And I grew up with this deep appreciation of something bigger than me, which is what this faith is, right? It, it unites us into a reality that is far more transcendent than you and I. Mm-hmm. And then I developed the language with the Sisters of St. Dominic, who were tremendously formative in my life. Then the Jesuit Fathers at Regis. Mm -hmm. And Regis was a, was a great school. It was tough. I mean, my first semester, I thought I was going to fail out of Regis. In fact, if I wanted to do a public confession, I mean, for the first two months at Regis, I think I failed every quiz and every, every lab. Wow. Until my mother sat me down and she said, you know, what's going on? And I was reluctant to give myself to the experience because I really didn't want to go to Regis. Hmm. I wanted to go to Severian where all my classmates went. And she said, you know what? Give it, give it a real try. And if you're not happy at the end of the year, you can change. And then I fell into it and fell in love with it. Right? So those are the sort of life experiences I've had that I wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. Yeah. Hmm? So, you know, I'd like to know um, about the kid who was the young Frank Caggiano, mm. you know, besides, so just tell us, tell me about what kinds of things you like to do mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, give me a flavor for, for mm -hmm. what your childhood was like. This may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but by personality, I am an introvert. I am not an extrovert. Huh. I have grown to be a functional extrovert. But as a child, I spent a lot of time reading. I recall on Saturdays, we had confession on Saturdays. Many mm -hmm. churches still do. Mm -hmm. And it was not uncommon for me to wind up in church at maybe 1.30 in the afternoon. Confession was at 4. Wow. And I would sit in church and spend literally hours in my own thoughts with wow. the Lord there, not actually recognizing the fact the Lord was forming me all that time. Yeah. Um, I had a, a close-knit group of friends. I didn't have a large circle of friends, but they were like brothers to me, three in particular, who all lived on the city block where I lived. Right. Because I didn't have a, a natural brother, I mean, a sibling in that sense. So we shared stories, we shared meals, we shared trips, we shared everything. So I wasn't an adventurous type. I was kind of a homebody. Hmm. And that kind of created the religious imagination that I now have. I love science fiction because it stretches your imagination, right? You, you think in different terms of what reality can be like. First it was Star Trek, then it was Star Wars in a strange sort of way, right? It was, it's the wonder and awe of it all. Yeah. That's, what I, that's the sort of young boy and young man I was. And in high school, Regis forced me out of my comfort zone, for which I will always be grateful. Yeah. So I had, Annette, again, a small group of friends. And what we would do often is we would walk, take walks through the city. I mean, because Manhattan for me was like, wow. Yeah, right. You know, well, in Brooklyn, you, Manhattan was the city. Brooklyn was not the city. Manhattan was the city. 
So Friday afternoons, we would sometimes walk from Regis to Zabar's. Oh, wow. And buy food and stuff. And then sometimes walk all the way down to Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue, which is in the 10, like 18, 17, whatever it was, street. Wow. So you spend the whole afternoon and the people, the sights, the sounds, the languages, it was just, again, all fed into my world that I'm very grateful for. But it was, I was kind of like a, how can I put it? I was, um, I was comfortable in a small, enriching, diverse, but kind of small world. Okay. And then it began to grow. Now as the bishop, it's like, I'm all over. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you discover your vocation then to the priesthood? Was it in the church there as a, as a boy? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I am a, the typical individual who fought the vocation hmm. for a good part of my young life. Because I had this sense... In fact, there's an image in my mind I'd like to share with you because it almost paints the picture of my religious vocation. As I said, my mother was very religious. She was the saint in the family. And we would go to mass and my mother, there was no discussion. So at consecration time, we were all kneeling. We all knelt. Even when I was six and seven years old. So the only thing I could see was the pew in front of me because I was tiny. Right. But there was one Sunday I will never forget where I happened to wind up at the edge of the pew. So we're all kneeling, and my mother's in her prayers, and Mass is going on, and I remember looking around the side of the pew. So I had the first clear glimpse of what was going on. And then in the old St. Simon and Jude, which was the old wooden church, hmm. there was this beautiful, deep, burgundy, velvet curtain behind the crucifix. There was this huge crucifix of our Lord. And of course, there was the high altar and then the altar that was placed after the Vatican Council and the mass was going on. And I remember all of a sudden being captivated with what was going on. There was like something in my heart changed that it was so beautiful and so beyond what I ever imagined that it spoke in a way that there really weren't words. I think my vocation first became clear to me in that very moment. Wow. And then, like a typical Italian-American kid from Brooklyn, I fought it. I said, you gotta be nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went to Regis and went to Yale, my father was like thrilled. Right. You know, my son, the future mayor, my son, right. the future president. <laughs> um, but it was there. And so I fought it and then I couldn't fight it much longer. I went to the college seminary. And when I graduated the college seminary, again, one of these idyllic moments and, and also iconic moments, I graduated. And when everyone left the chapel of Cathedral College to go into the reception, I remember staying behind and there was a beautiful crucifix in that chapel, mm. still there. Mm -hmm. And I looked the Lord and I said to him, Lord, I will do anything you ask, but I will not be a priest. <laughs> and walked out did not go to the major seminary, worked for McGraw Hill, only maybe eight years later to be ordained a priest in that very chapel. Wow. Now, you see how God works? The providence of God? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I came reluctantly to it because I can be very stubborn <laughs> by personality. Those who work with me know that. <laughs> but even God can break that yeah. over time. Yeah, right. Amazing. Uh, and I love my vocation. 
Uh, it is who I believe I was created to be. It's not easy being a bishop, particularly in this day and age. Right. One day maybe we could talk about that. There comes with some real challenges. Sure. But I love what the Lord has asked of me to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're grateful you're here. I guess my next question, I know you're gonna, you could go on forever forever <laughs> so but... you know me <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to uh just take a a few minutes and just you know you've been here in bridgeport for about six and a half years mm -hmm. tell us how you see things here locally in the diocese right now and kind of where you see things going over the next mm -hmm. few years mm -hmm. i think um we are at the opportunity point now where we can begin some real evangelical growth. My first five years here in the diocese was really, for, for out of necessity's sake, involved with a lot of administrative reform. Right. Um, there was the need to bring a greater clarity and transparency to our finances and to some of our financial difficulties and some of the institutional challenges and, of course, the abuse crisis. Right. That culminated with the judge's report last year. I think that's a defining moment for us because as difficult as all of that information was to read, it is the truth. Yes. And now learning from all of those past mistakes, we need to move forward. One of the high points of these first six years was the synod we had because there was genuine enthusiasm among right. the delegates and seeds were planted. And sometimes seeds take a while to grow. Mm -hmm. I think we're at the point now where they can begin to grow, to engage laity appropriately in leadership in parishes and in the diocese, to engage young people, particularly young adults. Because right. we do a decent amount of work with youth, but young adults yes. really concern me, 20 and 30 year olds. Families was one of the major impetuses of the synod. How, do we go, how are we going to support families? Young parents, raising children, I mean, you have children. I mean, in the world in which we live with social media and the internet and all the rest, as much as you want to protect them and guide them, there are so many forces that want to do yeah. perhaps something else. Yeah. We're at the point now where I think we can begin to start building on this foundation, the basement that we have created. So I'm very excited for the next few years. Yeah. Right. How do you do that? You, I, I, you start with the families then, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think you start with the basic cell. So the two families, parish life mm -hmm. and family life, mm -hmm. are the two families I had in my life. I didn't have a perfect family, but I had a loving family. I've also often said in some of my talks when, when I speak about young people and the role of parents, my mother was the single greatest example in my life of how God loves me. For many a time, my mother was really angry at some of the things I did growing up, but I never doubted she loved me. And that's ultimately a parent's role, yeah. is to help their children understand that God will forever love them, even though he may not approve of what they do. He will never disapprove of who they are. So the role of the natural family we have to strengthen parents in their faith and in their witness to young to their children. And then our spiritual families, which are our parishes, we have a lot of work to do there. Because in my mind, you are not truly a parish unless everyone knows your name. Right. 
So mirroring what I said about my neighborhood, where if you walk in, everyone knows you. And if you're not there, someone will miss you. Yeah. We need to work on that. So are we poised to do that? I think so. Yeah, I think so. In the next few years, we can we can do some really exciting experiments. And Veritas Radio is part of the first fruits because they may be parents who will listen to us and to the programming who may not yet be in church who will one day find their way right? because of this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. So let's go to a break. When we come back, we'll dive into Lent. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. Bishop Frank, seeing as how today is Ash Wednesday, Mm -hmm. let's talk about Lent. Absolutely. So you were saying during the break that you love Lent, and you started to tell a story. I said, hold on. So Mm -hmm. please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Lent, when I was growing up, Lent was an absolutely special time, in part because we were intentionally going to act differently. I remember the sisters in school would tell us, well, what are you going to do for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? What are the practices, right? And it was always giving up something. So this was diet time. This was being more healthy time. But I remember in in a very particular way, um, the power of the symbol of purple. Hmm. I remember the quiet that we as a school went to because we would sit about five minutes in silence before the Stations of the Cross, I vividly remember being mesmerized by walking the church in the Stations. And we did it, each class had an opportunity to do it during Lent. My mother observed Lent in a very particular way. So if she could, she avoided cooking meat for all the days of Lent. Wow. And so no hamburgers, no this, no that, no hot dogs. That left a deep impression on me as a as growing up. Plus, we had a little altar in our house. You know, my mother had put it, and I kind of tended to it. And there were all the statues of our patron saints and all the rest of it. And right around what would have been Passion Sunday, when the churches covered the statues, so too did we. Hmm. So right in the midst of our home, there were there was this little altar and these. So and I'd pass it. 25 times a day, the recognition that this is something different. So now, much older, I see Lent less as a season and more as a discipline. We enter into a discipline of life that wants to reorient us again to what really matters, to what's really important. So it's penitential and it's reflective, but it is also, it's also meant to be a time that breaks the ordinary. So we can experience the extraordinary in Easter and the Easter season. So as adults, how do you do that? Right. Is something everyone needs to start reflecting on because today being Ash Wednesday is the beginning of that discipline. So if our listeners have not done that, then my my hope would be that sometime today, after the imposition of ashes, You take the time to say, well, how am I going to use these days to break my ordinary routine and offer it in sacrifice to the Lord for my sins, for my renewal of life, for the renewal of the world, for a person I love, for a special intention, whatever else it may be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think 
I saw a statistic that is um, positive and hopeful for mm -hmm. today, mm -hmm. Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. The Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate did a study, and they found that attendance at Ash Wednesday Mass is more than double the attendance oh. at the regular weekly masses. Oh, at least. So you're not surprised. No, when I was pastor, I would say it was three times. Wow. So oh what, it, what is it about Ash Wednesday? Ah. Oh. You know, those who are cynics among us would say, because you're getting something for nothing, right? <laughs> so you're getting ash. It's like palms. <laughs> right. You get something, you take it home, all the rest. Right. And perhaps that's operative in some courts, but I don't actually believe that's the prime motivation. I think there's a deeper fascination. There is a deeper fascination in the very symbol of an ash or ashes. Mm. Because deep down inside, there is this sense in all of us of our own mortality. Much of the addiction we experience in the modern world is a flight away from that basic insight. Yeah. That I have a certain time. I am a limited creature. And death is a part of my life. And most people want to avoid that. Right? So I think there's a deep fascination. I remember some bishops even telling stories that non-Christians come on Ash Wednesday to hmm. receive ashes because it's deeply primordial, right? It's deeply human. Yeah. There was a funny story when I was the pastor of St. Dominic's, right? Uh, and of course, in an Italian-American parish, everybody came on Ash Wednesday. <laughs> everybody. So I had a collection at every service. Everybody <laughs> came. And this one woman came up, and she was so wrapped up in her own thoughts that when she came up for the imposition of ashes, she both stuck out her tongue and held out her hands as if you were receiving Holy Communion. <laughs> and I just looked at her and I thought to myself, now what do I do? <laughs> and she looked at me. So I imposed it on her forehead and she smiled and I just started to laugh because I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? But she was lost in her thoughts. Yeah. So um, some pastors would be moan the fact that people come just for today. I would welcome them. Yeah and invite them to a deeper reflection. Why, what are you look? The first words in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus says, what are you looking for? Mm -hmm. This is the day to ask, what are you looking for? What's the treasure you're looking for? What's the treasure that's going to last? This yes. is the opportunity to look at those questions. Yeah. In Lent. And, for, and if I may, my boxes also were a big part of my Lenten observance as growing up. I'm sorry, what is... The mite boxes, we used to call them mite boxes, and now it's loaves and fishes for, and CRS oh, right. has okay. their own, yes. right, the rice bowls. We used to call them mite boxes for the propagation of the faith. Huh. And the, the task was to fill it up with your own money, right? not money that your parents would give you, which it sometimes was a bit of a struggle. But the very fact that you wanted to make that a, a goal, I look back, that was tremendously formative for me. Yeah. Hmm? It's another symbol for a young kid that this is different. Right. And there are those in need who are in some way part of my family that I need to reach out to. Yes. Right. And if I may just segue in, one, in this sense, for young people and young adults, but particularly young adults, who may have their difficulties with the church, which maybe one day we can talk about, they still have a basic intrinsic goodness about them. Right. And they want to do good, and they want to make a positive difference. And it seems to me 
that Lent is one of the places where we can gauge them and say, there is poverty, there is starvation, there is malnutrition, there's conflict all throughout the world. We can do something about it now. And these technological means can actually help us to do that. Why don't we engage that? Yeah. Walk with us in mission, even if you're not comfortable walking with us in another regard. Yeah. That will come later. Yeah. So that's what, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you, and you led right into it, was what are some practical things that we should be doing this Lent? Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like, you know, everybody gives something up. And you're saying, do something extra. Absolutely. See, one of the great challenges we have in evangelization is that we conceptualize everything. So I just spoke before about malnutrition or poverty. Uh, uh, well, that's a concept. But poverty has a name. It could be John or mm. Joan or Bill or whoever. Right. It has millions of names. And it is, it is both prophetic and it is transformative when these issues are given a face. Because then you're touching a real life. Right. And there, but for the grace of God, would be my life. Yeah. If I was born somewhere else, if I was born in Somalia or South Sudan, I would be in those shoes. And who am I to have been privileged to be born with an immigrant parent in a country where they were living in, in a middle-class life that I inherited? Right. right. So the doing good, I would put it this way. It really is putting a face and a name to the issues we face in society, to, to make a difference in someone's life. And therefore, in a soup kitchen, or where you actually are face-to-face -face with a brother or sister in need, that's transformative. That's what Lent is meant to do. Yeah. And that, that desire to do that, that's inherent in all of us, whether you go to church or not. So right. like you're saying, it's, right. an it's an opportunity to invite mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. If I may be a bit theological, it flows out of the basing insight in Genesis that we are made in the image and likeness of God, mm -hmm. every human being. That What that means is God, who in himself is a community of love, a going out of himself, so too for us, we are only fulfilled by going out of ourselves not clinging to ourselves. Yeah. So it's that basic instinct in everyone. Now we, as Christians, have understood that to be precisely why we exist. Right. Others may not come to that point, but, but we can help them to understand what we believe by engaging them in the work yes. first. So those are, those are very good corporal works mm -hmm. that we can all engage in, that everybody relates to. How can we... Mm, how can we develop more spiritually over these next 40 days? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving obviously are the three keys to Lent. They right. are the, the traditional disciplines. And of the three, my guess would be that the one that people may have the greatest challenge is in prayer. In part because they have not been given an opportunity to learn the richness of what prayer really means. Mm. Again, perhaps in a future show we can talk about that. Yes. Um, St. Paul says in Thessalonians, you are to pray always. And I've reflected on that in multiple fora when I say to people, you know, St. Paul was not a romantic. He meant what he meant. He was not sentimental at all. Yeah. He meant that. 
Right. So what does he actually mean? And the little I can contribute to that question is simply to say there's a worldview. There's a way of looking at reality. It's seeing, it's training your mind and heart to see God everywhere, for he is everywhere. And that's a prayerfulness. Then when we pray formally, raises that consciousness to words and expression. But that prayerfulness needs to be there. Yeah. Right? So in Lent, I'm hoping and praying that parishes are providing missions and providing opportunities to teach people how to pray and the beautiful forms the church offers to pray. Um, reciting words is not always what a person needs to truly pray. I have learned the hard way in my life, again, somewhat stubborn in my way of living, the hardest lesson I've had to learn is how to listen, to just be quiet mm -hmm. and allow God to speak because I always do the talking. <laughs> I have, as I've grown older, I've become much more comfortable listening. And I have, my relationship with the Lord has deepened dramatically because he now does a good part of the talking, I don't. Yeah, it's so hard these days because we're always connected. We've got the smartphones in our pockets, which even when they're not in front of our faces, they're causing noise in our head because they're there in our pocket. Sure, sure, and it's, and it's information no longer for the pursuit of truth. It's information for the sake of information. Right. And that becomes distracting in yes. and of itself, right? Yes. Right. So we remove that, we can get closer to that state of prayerfulness, mm -hmm. and from there we can build. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I would suggest to those who are listening to us today is Lent is the perfect opportunity to rediscover the power of beauty. Hmm. That image I painted for you when I was a little boy was a, 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 an unvarnished, powerful experience of beauty that did not have words, but spoke to me in my heart in a way words could not have. Yeah. So Stations of the Cross, my, when I go to Lourdes with the, or the Order of Malta, it's a beautiful, it's a pilgrimage. It's a beautiful experience for me. It's humbling too, my gosh, to see the, the dedication of the order and, and the malads and, and to, to hear their stories. But to go to the grotto and just watch what happens is an exercise of beauty. Why? Because God makes his presence revealed principally through speaking to the heart. Mm -hmm. So prayer, silence, music, story, literature, poetry, architecture, pilgrimage are all exercises of beauty yeah lent is the perfect time to do that yeah right because we want to engage our hearts not just our minds right yeah and of the three transcendentals it seems like beauty is the one that is it's the most not universal but it's the easiest for most people to 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 see and then to then draw closer to god right and, and the three being truth, mm -hmm. beauty, and goodness. Right. Truth is the one, the way I kind of see it in my simple way, it engages mind, heart, and will. Yes. And you need all three to have a true conversion, like a full conversion. So Augustine was, Augustine's typical. He had two, mm -hmm. missing the third, the right. will. Convert me, but not quite yet. <laughs> right. Because I'm not quite ready. <laughs> right. So we're all at different places. 
But I, I would think for young people in particular, the mind is overloaded. The will, we're trying to engage and serve it. It's the, it's the heart. It's the great struggle of the heart. Yes. I want to take um, a couple minutes to, uh, to talk about the upcoming, this upcoming Sunday's uh, gospel. Mm-hmm. So it's the first Sunday of Lent. Mm-hmm. And in this Sunday's gospel reading, Satan tempts Jesus with food, with power, with putting God to the test. Mm-hmm. So how should we, uh, how should we read this Sunday's gospel, mm-hmm. and then you know take that to heart as we go into Lent? Mm-hmm. Well, well um, so I'm previewing my homily, I guess. Yes, <laughs> uh, and certainly it is a rich experience for us to contemplate. I tremend, I get. Tremendous consolation in the fact that Jesus, in his true humanity, all right, understands what temptation is as we experience on a daily basis. He experienced it differently than we do because his will is not divided, for he was sinless. Yes. Right? So it was much more transparent to him in his freedom as a human, in his human nature, divine person in his human nature, that he could see clearly the falsity of what was being presented before him. We struggle not always seeing that. But he was one with us in experiencing that temptation. So one of the takeaways I have from this experience is that in the desert, when we find ourselves tempted, the Lord is with us Hmm. to grant us the grace to be able to see clearly the tempter. For the tempter is the great deceiver. He's the great liar, as he is. And he will unmask the lie for us to be able to choose in the mind of Christ. The second piece is the angels came. Now, the Lord didn't need the angels. He is, after all, God-made man. But they came almost in homage to who he was. But I gain consolation that he will send the angels to aid us who struggle. So he's there and his angels are there to help us. He will give us clarity of what was really before us. And the angels, their presence, are the assurance that we will have the grace to be able to overcome it. It doesn't make it easy, but it shouldn't be easy. (laughs) Because nothing worthwhile in life is easy, is it? Nothing. That's right. Right? So there is a struggle. It has to be a struggle. So I find it very consoling, the, the first Sunday of, of Lent. And I think it's precisely there to console us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those temptations, who doesn't, I mean, power, money, self-gratification. Mm-hmm. I mean, we comfort. all struggle with that comfort. We all struggle with that in so much shape. And, that, and wealth and comfort and pleasure are not in and of themselves intrinsically evil. It's when they're misused, they right. become evil. Right. Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, so you don't have to listen to my homily. We're done. <laughs> well, you know, there, <laughs> there's a small group that gets to listen to your homily every Sunday, and the rest of us don't. So I'm, I'm very, no, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> um, all right. So let's take one more break before we have Bishop Frank answer some emailed-in questions. Okay. Welcome back again to Let Me Be Frank. Bishop Frank, before we wrap up the show, we're going to take a look at some of the questions that were emailed into you. Great. All right. We'll start with Terry. Terry wrote in to ask, 
Why do you think so many Catholics do not believe in the real presence in the Eucharist? Wow. Well, that's an excellent question. And it probably has a very complicated answer. So I may not do justice to the whole answer. But my sense is that belief many times follows practice. How you act helps form what you believe. So I was recently at a gathering, and I challenged the gathering that was held in a chapel. It was on the Eucharist. And I said to them, who in this group, when they came in, reverenced the Lord, acknowledged his presence, either genuflected, or if you cannot genuflect, to bow, to acknowledge that the creator of all things is here with us. And I said it not as a reproach, but I think as a reminder that how we act informs ultimately what we believe. Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said, if you do not act what you believe, you eventually believe how you act. Mm, yes. So part of the diminishment of the belief in the real presence is bad theology that's been taught. Part of it is a lack of reflection on the mystery. Part of it is lack of participation at Mass. And part of it is the practices we have in our forgetfulness adopted over the last perhaps 20 or 30 years, which does not force us in act to express what we believe is in that tabernacle. Yeah. So Eucharistic reverence and piety and posture aids, or in this case, diminishes our belief. All those factors together have caused that. It is a major, major, I would not say crisis, quite yet, because I think that's precisely what the father of evil would want us to do, characterize it as a crisis so that we'll come up with a strategic plan. No. Right. No. Yeah. But it is a worrisome moment in the life of the church that can easily be reclaimed. Yeah. If we go back to three things, acting what we believe in the presence of the Eucharist, attending mass with an open heart as to the mystery that is there, attending it reverently and attentively, and to teach the truth. I think the, this can be easily reversed in the next generation, but those are the three elements I would suggest. Yes. Yeah, it's the source and summit, but mm -hmm. you, sometimes you can't tell that it is. Of course. By looking around it. At how, and I'm certainly guilty of this too mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, so Absolutely. yeah. And we live in a time when the emphasis is on the uh, horizontal. So it's our relationships with each other, which is a truth. Right. But it's our relationship with the Lord, which is the animating principle that holds us together in the first place. Yes. So mass cannot be just a horizontal experience. It has to be a, a, a vertical or transcendent experience too. Right. And perhaps in another occasion, we could talk about even this rise of the fascination with and the love for the extraordinary form of the Mass. And, and some of the reasons I think that's happening. Yes. Um, so it's worrisome. It's urgent. I don't believe it is um, it, that it is either set in stone or can't be reversed. I believe it is reversible. Yes. I'll just interject with one mm -hmm. quick story. Um, I know somebody who uh, was getting married to a non-Catholic mm -hmm. and she took him to mass 
with her. And at the end, they were walking out. And he said, so are you telling me that Catholics believe that that Eucharist is God? And she said, yes. And he said, hmm, yeah, I'm not sure. She did. She, then she took him to an extraordinary form mass. And he walked out of there and he said, okay, those people all believe that mm -hmm. that is God. Mm -hmm. It's not that one mass is better than the other, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, mm -hmm. there, is, there is a witness that we do whatever mass we go to. It's up to us to witness. That's mm -hmm. part of what you're saying. So on this Ash Wednesday, I'm going to challenge you and me and every listener. If you do go to church, make sure when you enter into church, you the first thing you do after you bless yourself with holy water is acknowledge where the Lord is in his Eucharistic presence and make the proper reverence in genuflection or in a bow, if you cannot genuflect, and enter into the pew and offer your thanksgiving that the Lord is present there. That is one of the greatest practices this Lent we can all do. Yes. Great. I will do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, let's go to our second question. Our second question comes from Anne. She asks, how can we have faith that there is a caring and attentive God mm -hmm. when there are situations like war and two or more sides pray intensely and seriously, it seems silly to think that God likes side A better than side B on a particular day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is a very profound question. That is an age-old question, right? Why is there evil in the world? And why, if there is a truly loving, good, and forgiving God, is the world a mess? <laughs> right. Well, the truth of the matter is, the world's a mess because we've created it to be a mess that in order for us to be able to participate in God's life, who is love, there needs necessarily the freedom to be able to make the choices to love or not to love. And our track record with our freedom as a group, it leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. And as she indicates, I mean, so insightfully, then God gets blamed for it because it's wrapped up in a mantle of religion that says we're doing this because this is God's will and we're appeasing a God or honoring God, which, I mean, in all the in all the religions, the established religions that I'm aware of, and particularly in Christianity, mm -hmm. there is no excuse to ascribe our poor use of freedom as God's will or God's desire. Right. Right. I've come that they may have life and have it to the fullness. And then I think, therefore, for us, the great mystery is how long are we going to take our freedom and beat it up and use it poorly rather than to give honor and glory to God? That's a question every one of us has to answer individually. And the leaders of the world need in their stewardship to ask on behalf of all God's children. It's an inescapable question. For in the end, it's not an issue of God being guilty of what's going on, for he is not. But he's permitting us to love, and if we fail, we will be held accountable for that. Yeah. So it is a very sobering reality. And I could bemoan the leaders of the world creating the havoc we live in. But what about the havoc I create in my own life? Hmm. And I create in the lives of the people around me by my poor choices or my unloving choices or my sinful choices. Now, 
before I blame the world's leaders, why don't I take a look in the mirror too? Me personally, yes. this Lent and say, well, how can I use my freedom in a more loving way? Because the world's not going to be built from the top down. It's going to be rebuilt from the bottom up. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, we, we should reflect on that perhaps in a, in a, in a future time yeah. together. Um, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about my own short temper with my kids. Mm-hmm. So you can't hear my confession right now, can you? No, no, no. <laughs> we'll do that no. Unless everybody's just a bystander. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the third and final question for this week. Uh, Dominic wrote in to ask, why do Catholic scholars suggest and recommend we read Dante's Inferno? Ah. And he says, why is the Inferno recommended when it's fiction, mm-hmm. while so many saints have had actual visions of hell that mm-hmm. we can read? He says, Bishop Frank, can you elaborate on this? Mm-hmm. And can you talk about some of the sufferings in hell? So a nice light question for you. Wow. <laughs> All right. I would say to Dominic, we as Catholics always want to avoid false choices. That it's this or that. I think in this case, it is this and that. Hmm. So we certainly have a spiritual tradition of visionaries and saints and prophets who have glimpsed the fires of hell and what hell looks like and what hell is and have intuited spiritually what it is. And therefore, it is incumbent on us to get to know what that is because it's offered not only for their sake but for our sake as well to help in our spiritual life. But that does not mean that in some of the more, I'm going to say, imaginative Mm -hmm. narratives of hell Mm -hmm. that God could not speak through those also. I mean, yes, Dante is writing fiction but he's writing it in a faith perspective. Right. He is trying to give expression to that which the Lord has revealed in his own heart, in his own spiritual journey. So we talk about beauty, it's one of the paths. Yes. Right? And he's not presenting it as historic, he's presenting it as fiction, but it gives you an opportunity to... So for example, if my memory serves me well, at the pit of hell in the inferno is cold, there's mm. ice. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful, imaginative insight to reflect on because we speak of the fire of love and in the absence of love is oh, cold. Wow. Yes. So then in this Lent, you could ask yourself, how cold has my heart become? Mm. Or is there a part of my heart that has become cold? Why? See? Yeah. So there's a power even to the narrative of Dante. Now, as for my describing what hell is like, I mean, I, I would only rely on what the, what the mystics and visionaries have, have provided. The one thing that animates in my mind is it's often easier to say what something is not mm-hmm. than what something is. So if God is love, then hell is an existence that is eternal, that has absolutely no love. Right. Which is the exact opposite of who and who created us and in the image in which we are created. Yes. It would be a contradiction that is forever. I could not imagine a more awful existence. Yeah. And going back just though to the Inferno, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the all three books of the Divine Comedy are quite... Catholic. Yes, they are. And uh, Yes, they are. But one of the things we can explore at another time yes. is the power of imagination. Hmm. 
because it is a cognitive ability that God has given us. And imagining does not mean that we make stuff up necessarily. Imagining is allows us to put ourselves in places and times and situations and help to understand them cognitively and emotionally. Yeah. So in the scriptures, imagination helps us to put us on the road to Emmaus as the quiet observer of the two disciples and the Lord, to watch, to feel, to see, to taste, to touch what it was like to be there, to open the power of the truth to convert us, because it's more than the mind. Mm -hmm. So imagination is a powerful tool in the spiritual life. And when you read something like the Inferno, St. Ignatius understood that in the spiritual exercises. It's something we have to reimagine, if I could use that mm -hmm. term, in our own world, because suddenly imagination now is science fiction, it's make-believe. No, well, that's one use of it, but it's not its primary use. Yeah. More to talk about. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, good thing we have a bunch of shows coming up. <laughs> okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Caggiano, be sure to send your questions in, okay? It's really easy. Just email questions at veritascatholic.com. So as we wrap, I just want to thank all of you for joining us for the premiere episode of Let Me Be Frank. You can find both Veritas Catholic Network and Bishop Frank Caggiano separately on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And podcasts of today's show will be available tonight on the Veritas Catholic Network app, or you can find us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Your Excellency, would you please give us a blessing before we go? Steve, thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. I look forward to other opportunities. Thank you. I'm very excited about this. Let us pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you and be merciful to you. And may the Lord in his kindness grant you his peace. And may he bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless Amen. everyone, and happy Lent to you all. God bless. See you next week.